Hello, everyone. This is JJ from Keyword Crypto. Today on the show, we talked to Elena Natalinsky, and she taught us about zero-knowledge proofs, and we discussed privacy in cryptocurrency. We had a little bit of an issue with the audio. We tried to fix it up in the edit. Hopefully, it's not an issue, um, and you can still enjoy the podcast. As always, follow us on Twitter at Keyword Crypto, at Keyword Crypto JJ. Check out our website, keywordcrypto.com, and our Patreon and all that. Join our community and uh, let us know who you want us to interview next. All right. Thanks a lot. So, Elena, I met you through a mutual friend, Jackson Palmer, who has been on this show, and he's a friend of the show. He was one of the creators of Dogecoin, and we met at a party at his house, and Jackson said, you should you should meet Elena because she knows a lot about crypto. She knows a lot about Bitcoin and she's kind of a privacy expert. I think those were his words. And we started talking and it was kind of funny because I was taught, you know, you asked me about the podcast I was doing and I started talking about one of the one of the one of the guests that we had on. I think we were talking about, uh, you know, uh, miners taking fees or something. And I was trying to explain how it worked. And you kind of stopped me and said, actually, no, that's not how it works. And then you then you went off and you explained in perfect detail exactly how incentivizing miners works. And I was like, maybe we should just get this woman on the podcast and let her talk. So first off, so I just want to say, you want to tell us a little bit about you and what Beanstalk is because we couldn't find very much information on the internet. We kind of we kind of poked fun at you in the last episode that we looked for you and all we could find is a blank page asking for our information. <laughs> yeah, right. It's really asking good point. for our private info. That's, that's a, yeah, it's a hilarious point. Yeah, our, um, our website is just a landing page right now. So I do apologize for that. Eventually, we're going to publish a lot more content um but yeah <laughs> so <laughs> to answer your previous question give you a bit more background um uh so i used to be a software engineer at airbnb um and then 2017 happened um and crypto happened and i remember going to uh, a dinner at a friend's house um and i got to this dinner and everybody everybody there was talking about ethereum and I didn't even know what it was. This was like like mid twenty seventeen, um, and then you know on the right back, I'm like googling on the phone like what is Ethereum, uh, and it turned out that the friend that I went to uh, have dinner with, um, his name is Juan. He has a company called Protocol Labs. Uh, they recently did Filecoin, or they're known for doing Filecoin, um, and I was kind of just amazed at this space. In, in general, um, and very shortly afterwards, ETH Waterloo happened. So ETH Waterloo is uh, part of the ETH Global Hackathon series, um, and that was the first kind of Ethereum-specific hackathon that happened, um, and it happened at University of Waterloo. And I remember having a conversation with someone, and they said, look, like if you're remotely interested about crypto, um, you should go there, because everyone in the industry is going to be there. And so kind of on a whim, I bought a ticket to Toronto, went to this hackathon, and sure enough, like so many, like so many early people kind of in the space were there. So the story that I like to use is like, you know, I'm at this hackathon, it's 4 a.m., I'm trying to get MetaMask to compile or, or to, to work with my project, um, and MetaMask is like an Ethereum uh, Chrome plugin, and it doesn't work. And eventually I ask somebody for help, and they don't know how to help me. And then they say, "Look, like I don't know how to I don't know how to help you, but you should ask Dan Dan Finlay, who wrote MetaMask, because he's sitting right behind you." And so I literally do like a 180 in my chair, and I get to talk to the person who wrote MetaMask, uh, and he he's like helping me debug the tool at like 4 a.m. in the morning. Anyway, so my takeaway from that was like, "Wow, this community is amazing! Like it's it's so welcoming and so open." Um, but also a lot of this is extremely new. Like there are so many bad practices that I'm seeing like developers do. Um, and I kind of decided to, to pursue it further um, and get more involved. And so I started doing like workshops and tutorials um, for how to write smart contracts. And then it kind of dominoed. <laughs> so that's kind of how I got into crypto. That's pretty amazing. So, so, what were, so you, were, um, yeah, you were a software engineer, Airbnb, then you just fell in into the the crypto 
black hole basically that ha- that happens to all of us but you have it happened to you in a very particular way and that sounds really cool so um so so then did you fall in love with ethereum then did you immediately start you know building smart contracts and and decentralized applications or yeah i mean kind of so i went to another hackathon i got to know more people um and at the moment or at that time i was more interested in non-fungible tokens um mostly because it's very easy to explain to people what they are because uh crypto kitties came out um and it was kind of a a unique example of how uh, like showing developers or people that you can actually put like custom assets on ethereum so you can make your own like playing cards or whatever it is and actually like you know put it on ethereum um so my first project at eth waterloo was decentralized video streaming so basically like the ability to take a any video file and put it on IPFS, which is a decentralized storage layer, and then um, have the video play, and then like you can donate to the video such that it has funds to kind of fund itself. Um, and what I realized was that the storage layer can be decentralized. We have IPFS as one of the projects. The payment layer is obviously decentralized, but the one layer that wasn't is the computation layer. So basically, how do you uh, how do you do the video transcoding? Um, and it's actually a very computationally difficult process. And so for my project, that was done on AWS. Um, and so I actually got into the rabbit hole of this question of how do you do verifiable computation, meaning that can you actually have this distributed network of nodes that, that and they do like very complex computation, transcoding, for example. Um, and then how do you, as a, a consumer of that, um, are satisfied that the output they did is correct? Does that, does that make sense for Slate? Sure. Yeah. You're, I mean, you're, tu- you're touching on a lot of things that I want to talk more about, but I also just... I like what you're saying, so keep going. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So, yeah, I mean, verifiable computers, like the problem of, like, you know, let's say, let's say JJ, you are a computer, uh, and I give you a task, and the task is for you to sum two numbers together. And then I give you a task to do, which is I want you to add 2 plus 3 together. And you add 2 plus 3, two plus three to get together, and then you give me the answer 6. So how, how can I, like in very little time and without the doing computation myself, how do I know if the answer you gave me is correct or not correct? Um, and so then if you think about it, like let's replace the 2 plus 3 or uh, the problem of summation to something more complex like video transcoding. And then the problem becomes like very difficult. Like, how, like if you transcode a video and give me an output, how do I know that it's correct? Anyway, so <laughs> uh, this is actually a very interesting problem, and there are a lot of teams at the time that were working on it. Truebit was one of them, and I got to talk to them. And by and by, uh, after talking to a lot of people, I kind of st- stumbled upon this tech called um, zero knowledge proofs, and it's a type of a uh, cryptography uh, that basically allows you to prove honest computation. So then if we go back to the example of, you know, there's a problem of like 2 plus 3, what is the output? So now JJ will basically give me 2 plus 3 equals 5, so he would give me the answer 5. And then additionally he would give me this zero knowledge proof that I can run um, to basically uh, to satisfy that 5 is indeed the answer because you've done the computation correctly. Um, so so uh, kind of in the midst of me like uh, diving into Ethereum and kind of like getting to the community, I was also discovering these zero knowledge proofs. And um, this is like very heavy duty cryptography, but it's they're kind of magical because they allow you to do this really difficult problem. Um, so I'll kind of stop there in case you have questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually, this is the first time we've ever had a guest that bring that brought up something like zero knowledge proof so it might not be something that our audience is really too familiar with is there and you gave us an example but what's what's an even dumber example of what a zero knowledge proof is i have a dumber example it's not well it's not that dumb i hope um so there is a story i don't know if it's fictional or not but i'm just going to pretend it's it's real um there was a math professor and he was trying to find an easy way to explain to people how zero-knowledge proofs work. And he was reading the book Where's Waldo to his son. And they're reading the book, and the dad goes, I see where Waldo is. And the son goes, prove it. So now we're in this like perfect example of where zero-knowledge proofs would be useful, because now the dad wants to prove to his son 
that he knows where Waldo is without revealing the answer, without revealing where Waldo actually is. And so what the dad does is he gets a huge piece of newspaper, such that the newspaper covers the entire book, and he cuts out a small little hole, such that when you cover the book with this newspaper, the little hole reveals where Waldo is. But it doesn't give the son any other clues about exactly where on the page Waldo is. It just lets the son know that the dad must know where Waldo is because otherwise he couldn't have placed the paper on the book in such a way that it reveals where Waldo is. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, but that's not exactly yeah. a proof, is it? That's more like... Well, it's only I mean, a proof when the child finds Waldo and then can put the paper up against it and say, oh, my dad was right. Yeah. So he still has to find Waldo, though, right? Um, well, the, so the, da- the dad is trying to prove that he knows where Waldo is. And so if the dad can place this paper such that the little hole reveals where Waldo is, then the dad has proved that he knows where Waldo is without revealing the answer. Yeah, but isn't it that like uh, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's around to hear it, does it actually fall type thing? Like how do you know it actually, until somebody else finds it and confirms it, how does he, yeah. how do we know that he's right? Because it's still like the two plus three equals six thing. Yeah, I could, and, I could cut a hole up and add a piece of paper and say, yeah, I found Waldo. Here's the piece of paper. But I, I think I think what you're saying is that it, it's a way of... So here comes of, the skeptics. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no, no, go on, go no, on. I think no, he, maybe there's a misunderstanding. So this, the, the uh, dad actually shows the son the book with the paper on top such that Waldo is revealed. I so, see. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Oh, okay. okay. We just needed the really dumb Waldo example. <laughs> it, it's a way of showing that you found something without showing any other clues to what it is or where it is, basically. Okay, cool. So that way, so, so the logic That's is if you pulled the paper right? away, it would still be really difficult for a son to find Waldo? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. it's kind of like, okay. yeah, and it, it yeah, hmm. I can think of all, I'm trying to think of all these other ways I could, like, show somebody where Waldo is now. <laughs> yeah, but, but I guess my question is, what if you would have to know who Waldo is and what Waldo looks like for that good to work. Yeah. So if the son didn't know what Waldo was or what Waldo looked like, there wouldn't be a way to prove it. So if I don't know what two plus three equals, <laughs> how, do you, cover of the book. <laughs> how do you prove it to somebody who doesn't know? Well, they that, don't that's, need to. <laughs> that's a much more that's a much more conceptual problem because we're not actually trying to solve for that. Though. That's the thing. <laughs> so, so it's mostly like, um, like let's say uh, there's a you have a bank account, and you just want to prove to someone that your balance is greater than a thousand dollars. Okay. And mm-hmm. you can do that. You can say, look, like I have added all of my you know pluses and minuses in my bank statement, and my final balance. Uh, is greater than a thousand. So the person you're proving this information to, they don't need to know how to add or subtract. They just need to uh, like have a way to kind of run your proof and be satisfied that your statement is correct, that you have more than thousand dollars in your bank account. Um, so yeah, so it's not necessarily of like can the prover or sorry can the um, can the challenger actually do the computation themselves? It's can they run the proof. So this is not something that people usually associate with Ethereum. Zero knowledge proofs is that's like kind of a word that comes up with Zcash and other privacy cryptos. So so when you uh, going back to your sort of evolution as a blockchain developer, uh, where are we? Yeah. So, <laughs> so I discovered what zero knowledge proofs were. I thought they were super cool, um, and uh, you know in parallel. I was getting more and more involved with the Ethereum community. So I started giving more talks and going to more workshops and going to more conferences. And there was definitely like this this turning point uh, in my life where I was still working full-time at Airbnb, the software engineer. And I remember my manager, you know, he was trying to be like nice to me. And he, he said, look, do you want to go to Barcelona for like a user research trip? And and I said, I'm so sorry, I already have a trip booked to Argentina for a crypto thing. <laughs> and I realized, like, oh, man, like, I feel like I have two jobs, and I feel like I'm sucking at both of them. <laughs> so I should just, like, choose one and go with it. Nice. Um, so are you yeah, going to yeah. say something? That, that's a really bad feeling when you, when you feel like you can't commit 100% to one thing. I've, oh, I've yeah. been in that boat, and it's just, it's, 
it, d- it does get frustrating after a while. So then did you go all in into to crypto engineering? Yeah, so I decided to go to crypto full time. And then there was a question of, okay, well, what do I do? Um, and I kind of worked backwards. I said, okay, well, let's imagine in like 50 years or, or so from now, um, blockchain is not like this cringe word. <laughs> um, it's actually being used as a ubiquitous payment system. You know, maybe like in 50 years, we figured out all the problems with. Yeah. Well, that's a big bet. That's a big bet if, if you're not, uh, I mean, yeah. But yeah, go ahead. So let's say that's a, that was a chance that you were going to take. Yeah, I mean, like, if you can imagine that world, then maybe people looking back to 2020 might think, wow, like, why would you ever want to have your value be tied to so much political drama that's happening? Like, your value, your worth as an individual might fluctuate based on what your president tweets, right? Or maybe based on decisions that your politicians have made in terms of, like, taking, uh, you know, foreign aid or taking, like, you know, financial precautions that you as an individual have zero power over, right? And so, you know, it might actually make sense for a person to think, like, wow, it actually really makes sense to have sovereign currency that's without a government that, you know, doesn't doesn't, uh, make my worth uh, fluctuate based on things that I have. Kind of like gold. Kind of like gold. (laughs) Which is still highly manipulative. Like, it's easy for countries to manipulate, but not to the extent of it is, like, their own currencies. So so then it's like, well, what are we missing to get to that future? And I kind of narrowed it down to three problems that we were missing. So one is stability, meaning that if I buy a banana with Bitcoin, you know, I would feel pretty bad if five minutes from my purchase, Bitcoin would, Bitcoin's price is going to fluctuate 10% plus minus. Um, right. <laughs> and so that's definitely a problem. The second problem that I identified was um, scalability. So Visa has something like 65 transactions a second at its peak, um, and Bitcoin can support four. <laughs> so definitely a huge difference. <laughs> and then the third problem that I identified was privacy. Um, I don't think many people realize just how not private Ethereum and Bitcoin is. Um, Especially Russian hackers. <laughs> yeah, it's something we actually talk about quite a bit on this show. It's one. It's it's um it's a misconception. Most people interested or who follow cryptocurrency know that most crypto is not even the most secure cryptos. Like, uh, you know, like Zcash isn't. It's not always a given that your transactions are going to be private. But yeah, but we've also, and this is something we'd like to talk to you more about, but just know this, that like we've also heard from, from people who don't necessarily think privacy is a good idea. So I mean, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that eventually, but keep going on, keep going on, on privacy as a, so privacy, scalability, and uh, uh, volatility. Volati- stability, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so for the first two, the stability and scalability, at least when I started, there were a tons of projects uh, working in, in those two areas. So if you remember, there, especially 2018, 2017, there was a huge influx of stable coins, um, trying to like figure out ways to pack to the dollar. Um, and then in terms of scalability, I saw a lot of projects working on sharding, and then a lot of projects working on layer two solutions. And so for me, it was like, well, actually, you know, I think layer twos make a lot of sense. And so we don't necessarily have to work on this on this problem, and we can kind of wait to see how that focus area develops and maybe take some ideas from there in the future. And then for privacy, there were very few projects actually working on privacy full-time, and I can kind of go into like why I think that is, but when I, when I started, there were Cash, there were um, definitely Bitcoin, there's Monero, and Grin is another project that just started happening uh, kind of when I started, started to look in this area more. Green so to beam, me, it was right, like, right. sorry, beam what? Is another, and beam, beam is another. That's right. Like on the mi- Wimble, mi- Wimble projects, yeah. Wimble, Wimble projects, yeah. yes. We know all the words, we just don't know what they mean. Yeah. Like <laughs> basically, we just need to, you know, figure out how to find Waldo in all these examples. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, yeah, but I thought it was like fascinating. Um, very few people were working on privacy. And after doing a little uh, more research, I realized that the strongest privacy technique that we have available is actually using these zero-knowledge proofs. 
um, which is what Zcash is doing. And so to me, it was like such a clear answer. There's this very obvious gap. Um, whoever figures out how to make a good privacy coin, there's a ton of potential. Um, and it's using like really like technology with these knowledge proofs. Um, so that was kind of like how I got to this project overall. All right. So why do you think that many projects are not working on it? Um, privacy is hard. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a really hard technical problem. And the reason why it's so hard is because um, the way Bitcoin works right now, for example, if I were to send you one Bitcoin, the reason why that transaction would be validated is because every miner can see that in the past, uh, other people have sent me uh, a sum of at least a Bitcoin, meaning that they can see that my balance is at least a Bitcoin. And so because everything's so public, they can say, they can say look, um, I can see this transaction. Elaine is trying to send one Bitcoin to somebody else. And I can see that that transaction is valid because we know exactly what Elena has. So in the privacy world, if so you're that, trying... That, not, sorry to interrupt, but ba basically speaking, Bitcoin sort of... W w the reason that it works is because it's not private because everyone can see. So privacy is a big challenge. Okay, go on. Well, it's a big challenge for basically any cryptocurrency. Ones that are trying to be decentralized and public literally means that any miner can come in and they can start validating transactions. So if it's private and I have this, let's say, like hashed or encrypted transaction, how is a miner supposed to know if this transaction is actually valid or not? And so different protocols kind of go about this way or go about this problem different ways. Um, so Grin, for example, um, uses what's called Peterson hashes, and so it's kind of like the concept that, like, even though something is encrypted, I can still check equality on it. Um, Monero works with decoys, um, and I, I don't know how technically you want me to go into, but it, it, so Monero basically tries to obfuscate what exactly is mine in the transaction that I'm trying to spend. Um, and then Zcash uses your large proofs, and they basically say, um, I can hide my transaction, and I can provide this proof that I basically have enough balance uh, to send to spend uh, to, in order for me to send this transaction. So those are kind of like the three approaches that people are using. And I'll pause right here. <laughs> Do you have questions? <laughs> Such a good teacher. <laughs> uh, Michael, you have questions? I have some more philosophical ones, but I kind of want to hold them for a bit. <laughs> um, I, I guess, oh, so, uh, I mean, not really about that because that's, I think, if you've been in crypto a while, and I feel like in the beginning of our podcast, we were trying to steer it towards, you know, crypto noobs, but I'm realizing the vast majority of people who do listen to our podcast kind of understand the space. So I feel like at a certain point, we just kind of have to accept that. And <laughs> yeah, and, or at least they say they do. Yeah. Um, so I get that, like, I guess from, from a business standpoint, did you like, is it, is it like a full on business at this point that you're doing? Is it, I mean, are you, yeah. What is your interest? Is it experimental? Is it, are you working off of grants? grants are you working off of like, like angel investors? investors? Like, did, like, did you did pitch you this to somebody and say, this is what I want to do? Or is it like Ethereum, Ethereum foundation? foundation? Like, how, so how, so how, how, does, how does that actually, actually work, work with running a business, a business? Yeah. With, with, in, in this in space? Question. So when I first started, we actually did get connected to investor and we did get a very small appreciative kind of get this project off the ground. Um, so you built, you built a team. You yeah, yeah, you say we. we. Oh, well, we is the very minimum number to say we, so it's me and another person. <laughs> oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. You, so, uh, this was a this is a joint venture. You guys both said we're quitting our jobs. We're quitting our work to go into this, looking into ma making crypto more private, essentially. <laughs> kind of. So um, I quit my job and <laughs> decided to go into this thing full time. And um, I had a friend, uh, so when I used to live in Seattle, I used to work for Microsoft, and I met this person, um, his name is Dusty, he's an amazing engineer, an amazing human being, and I met him while he was working at Facebook in also the Seattle area. Um, and so we met at a Python meetup, became friends, kept in touch, and when I quit my job, decided to kind of dive into crypto full-time, um, I noticed on Facebook he just made a post saying, like, he um, is available for work. He only works remotely from Canada. Um, and so I quickly messaged him and I was like, hey, Dusty, like, crazy question. <laughs> Do you want to build a 
privacy blockchain with me in Rust. <laughs> and I think, and so at the time, because he was in between jobs, I think he was just going to humor me, and he was like, sure. <laughs> and his only question was, do I have to move? <laughs> and I was like, no, it's okay, you can, you can stay in Canada. So we are a team, <laughs> by default. Nice. Yeah. So then, then, uh, so then, your your business is at the point you're getting in investment money. But what is your what is your your goal in terms of products and or delivery? Um, well, we're still working on actually releasing this chain. So at this moment in time, we've been working at it for uh, a little bit over a year, and so we yeah. have kind of a proof of concept that this works. Uh, we basically have an internal test net to prove out some of the things that we're working on. Um, and this is Beanstalk. This is what you're. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about this. I mean, as much as you can talk about it, I'm sure a lot of it's private, but, uh, it's, yeah. it's actually oh. <laughs> not private. It's more like I need to publish content on it. <laughs> I see. Um, all right. Yeah. So we basically took the stance of, uh, look like there is clearly the best privacy technique that we are aware of. It's this technique using zero knowledge proofs. Um, and part of the reason why, uh, you know, it, it's not, being used as much um, is because it's actually very difficult to support shield transactions that use zero knowledge proofs. So to kind of give you some numbers, um, Zcash is a privacy coin that uses this technique, but they uh, they have two modes of uh, sending transactions. One mode is called transparent, and it's identical to Bitcoin, technically speaking. So they actually forked the Bitcoin uh, code base when they first started, and so their transparent transactions are basically identical to Bitcoin. And then they have these shielded transactions, which use zero-knowledge proofs. Now, if you just look at the stats uh, of how many people uh, are actually using shielded transactions, I think roughly 1% of cash transactions are actually fully shielded. I heard about that. I was just like, no! <laughs> I've actually they're, spoken they're and met... compulsory too, right? Sorry, like... what? They're not compulsory. They're like you exactly. have to enable them, right? yeah. and it's actually very difficult to use shield transactions. And it's not on by default, so I think most yeah, people don't I mean. realize that, right? They just assume they hear it's private, and so they just use it. Um, yeah. So there's two things I want to hit in that sentence. So one <laughs> is a lot of people do assume that when they use Zcash, they're using a privacy coin. I've literally spoken to someone who was trying to convince me that they. Of, uh, shielded, shielded Zcash on, and um, they proceeded to pull out their phone to show me that they have some private Zcash. And then showed you, showed you their password as they logged in to prove it, to prove they have a password. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. um, and I basically said, look, the fact that you're pulling out a phone lets me know that it's not shielded Zcash because at the time there was no mobile support for shielded Zcash at all. <laughs> so it's impossible for you to do that. And then he uh -oh. said, a minute, but Zuko himself gave me the Zcash, so private. Zuko's a creator of Zcash. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's kind of relevant. <laughs> um, <laughs> you better get rid of all the guns and cocaine you just bought on the internet without that Zcash on your phone. Because Zuko told you it was safe to buy it with. <laughs> yeah. And the problem is that it's not like a mode, it's not like on Venmo you can just click on a radio button of whether or not you want your transaction to be private or public, mm -hmm. although I wish that was the case. It's actually very difficult to use shield transactions. So, in order to use shield transactions, you have to have a full node. Um, and I think Zcash just is kind of releasing their work on a like, but but there's like, in my opinion, still flaws with that design. So, <laughs> wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. You're serious? You can't you can't send anything secret like private unless you run a full node yourself. That's right. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> All right. Zcash, you got work to do. So <laughs> 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 <Meat> Beanstalk. <laughs> wow. Picking your ass. <laughs> so to give them some benefit, they are working on a light client, so to support, you know, clients running or having Zcash um and still being a phone or you know being in a web browser but sure, that is yeah. definitely still in my opinion work in progress and the um the like client solution they have right now has uh, some flaws, <laughs> to put it mildly. But and that's been like a recent development too. But yeah, so traditionally speaking, you have to have a full node to get shielded Zcash. And the reason for that is um, for Ethereum, for example, you know you can have a phone, like a uh, a mobile app on your phone, or you can use MetaMask, which is a Chrome plugin. And the reason for that is because 
you could like you as a, your as a client can ask a full node what my balance is. So MetaMask, for example, uses a service called Infura, which is basically a service for apps to ask a full node some information about certain addresses. And the reason why that works is because everything's public. So I can say, hey, full node, can you please tell me what my balance is? And here's my wallet. And then the full node will reply and say, this wallet has three Ethereum or three Ether. Yeah. And when you're in a private environment, you can't do that because that's the whole point. It's private. <laughs> so you can't ask... <laughs> A full node with my with my balances because it doesn't know, um, and so that's the reason why you have to have a full node yourself to figure out even what your balance is. Hmm. Wow, let's see. Well, that's crazy. Right. I didn't think so, I, never, I just never thought about that. So there's a big hole in this market, and that's what Beanstalk is trying to do. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly it. Make it. A, a push push button privacy. Yeah. So really fast, what is Beanstalk actually trying to do? Yeah. So. We are a new chain, and we only have shielded transactions. So we only have transactions that use zero-knowledge proofs. By default, right. So now, are you trying to be uh, uh, a currency or um, something like Chainlink or something like Ethereum where you're you know, doing other stuff on it besides shielded transactions? Yeah, good question. So we're not going to have any smart contracts. So I think that killer use case for blockchain is still payments and so we're really focusing on how do you make payments great <laughs> and <Yeah>. private <laughs> particularly yeah. darknet payments yeah so so oh, well, we can Go talk ahead. about that in a second but anyway yeah so beanstalk so that that's 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 what beanstalk is doing when it comes to i have a question that relates to to michael's previous question about like the business side of things uh, the business model for going out and creating your own chain and saying this doesn't exist is really i mean like right now you have you have funding to do this but what is how do you get paid from this eventually is the idea that you create this this coin this this asset on this chain that you have a lot of and eventually it becomes worth a lot of money and then you can sell that for your salary or how does it, what does it look like that's actually exactly it so we took a lot of inspiration from ethereum and they've done a similar model where they started with what's called a genesis block and the genesis block already had balance so they started with what's called a pre-mine um or i think the term has changed now but vernacularly it's called pre-mine where basically the uh, ethereum said look in the first block of our chain there's already going to be money allocated to some wallets and so effectively, you're basically saying, like, I'm printing money to myself, and that's how the blockchain begins. Um, and you kind of described it really well. So basically, we would allocate a lot of coins to ourselves. And, you know, these coins don't have any value when we start. And if the project succeeds, and if we succeed in making, you know, this, uh, this project have a healthy network and have, you know, participation and, and distribution and people care about it, then so would the price go up and then we would sell those coins to cover operations costs so like salaries and so on. Yeah. So we had we had Richard Hart on with uh, talk about Hex and he said his biggest complaint about Bitcoin and Ethereum was the miners have to dump on the market just to pay their bills and that's constantly um, deflating the price. And as we've seen with Ethereum, like it's just, you know, well, even Vitalik. It's even like Vitalik admitted that he sold ICO, the top. Though. I mean, that's if you're if you have a project that's funded with Ethereum, right? No, no, no. I'm saying so. Like, look at Ethereum. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, Vitalik admitted that he sold at the top. He sold a bunch of Ethereum at the top, and and uh, and the Ther Ethereum Foundation sold at the top. Oh, I see. And the price has been um, suppressed and just dropping and dropping since then. When and you have, a, yeah. I see. So how so? And I know, like, Bit. I mean, yeah, we're on Twitter too much, and and Bit and the Bitcoiners are so toxic. But that's their biggest complaint about Ethereum is that it's a scam because of the pre-mine. And and my response is always like, well, how is it any different than any business that takes a percentage of their stock for themselves? Right. To me, it's employees. a very genuine. Yeah. To me, it's a very genuine way to do business because it's, it's saying like it's, it's open and honest and and verifiable, and it's like. I mean, I definitely agree, and it aligns incentives. You're basically saying there's an entire team behind this project, and we're going to maintain it, and we're going to support it, and as such, we are going to pay ourselves with the coins. 
you know, that results in this project. Um, so I like, and I know, like, I've heard those arguments from Bitcoiners before, and I just don't understand them. Like, you have to pay developers something, <laughs> right? Yeah. And where is that money going to come from? It seems the most natural answer is from the project itself. Yeah, so I like, think that. So really fast follow up. Yeah. So then, how do so then how do you avoid price manipulation like what's happening with XRP and Ripple? Because most people think that the price is so low because they've systematically depressed the price for the last year and a half by selling just you know hundreds of millions of dollars worth of it out of the market. Yeah, I mean, I don't know all the details there, and this is actually a very difficult question of. You know, how do you sell coins on the market just to sustain your business, but also not manipulate or not influence the market? Um, and I don't, I don't have all the answers yet. Um, but you know, like our incentives as a company would be aligned. Like we would not want to tank our own price. We yeah. would not sell the tokens at the same, like all of them at the same time, because that's not a sustainable way to do business. Yeah. So I feel like by aligning incentives, you can say, look, like we don't know the right answers. But at least we're going to, like, we have good intentions and we're going to not to take the price because it's actually in our interest not to do so. Well, I mean, so most businesses have um, vested stocks, so you can't sell it within a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. And then if you, if, you, if you were open about your salary and you said, hey, we're, paying, we're each paying, getting paid $100,000 a year. So we're going to sell X amount of our, our coins to hit that number. So now all of our users and all the people supporting us aren't going to be surprised and we can't pull a Vitalik and sell 30% of our thing just because it hits a high number. That could easily just, I think most people would be like, oh, well, they're being honest and upfront and they're verifying this. And so we know ahead of time exactly how much coins are going to, are going to be sold based on the price. And so we can factor that in and not have it be like a, a complete surprise. I just think that like... A lot of people in crypto have been trying to, and I'm not saying you, I'm saying like other projects, have been trying to like hide a lot of these transactions because they don't want to, like, I mean, I don't know, like Charlie Lee, like, like exactly what Charlie Lee did with Litecoin. He decided to sell 100% of the top. Now, if he had sold, now, if he had said, hey, I, I feel like this is kind of weird as a CEO to hold such a huge percentage and, and, and I can manipulate the price. So I'm going to sell 10% of my, of my holdings for the next five years, every month. Everyone would know what was going on. It, was, it would be very clear. But the way he sold it, he says, oh, by the way, I sold 100% last week. I don't have any more Litecoin. And then all of a sudden, the price goes from 300 yeah. to $33. So, so Elena, I think one of the reasons this is a big question for us is because we have to look at a lot of projects and kind of decide whether they're scams or not because there are so many. And I think that finding out how a project makes money and how they use their kind of crypto runway, so to speak, it's um, I, I, you might not have all the answers to this, nor should you, but um, that's, that's the main reason that we kind of bring this up. And we, we recently had somebody on the show talking about, you know, the crypto pro project that they created on Ethereum, and he's getting a lot of criticism for the same thing. It's basically a pre-mine. So, yeah. But. And, and, and this, is, this isn't like us, you know, I, I don't want you to think like we're like, you know, pitchfork attacking you. These are just questions that we just instinctually think of. And so this is the first question we ask any kind of project of like, oh, how do you pay yourself? Yeah. Just because, only because the last two years with XRP and Litecoin um, jumped out at me. And then also all the ICOs with Ethereum, all the ICO people are, have been selling their Ethereum just to pay their rents, which is like, yeah, sure. That's how you, that's how, how else are you going to pay your rent? I, I mean, I get so mad at Bitcoiners because they're like, they're dumping all the Ethereum. It's like, yes, to pay rent yeah. <laughs> on their office. Like how else, like, are you giving them cash? No, you're, you know, so it's like, what do you, what do you expect them to do? So, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, in, in 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 saying we're not sure yet, totally plausible answer, and maybe us saying what we just said will make you know make you think about it a different way. You know, that's that's all. So I wanna I wanna know what like Beanstalk. So zero knowledge proofs. That's basically what. Is there anything besides that that makes it a special project? Or are you really trying to focus on that, solve that problem, and 
that's what it's going to be about. And how far along are you? Yeah, so we have one goal, just to make a privacy coin that works. <laughs> um, <laughs> awesome. And <laughs> it seems so simple, but it's like, a pretty hard thing to do. It actually is a hard thing to do, because like, what is works? Um, I want to make sure that this is very easy for people to use. Yeah. And I want to make sure that they have the highest guarantee that this is private. They don't need to think about which mode am I sending this in? Is it private? Is it not? What level of privacy does it have? I want users to just have this guarantee that they're using a product that is secure and private and safe for them to use. Um, in terms of the like, usability side, you know, we have a fasting technique. So basically, how do you sync a full node faster? Because that's really important for privacy coins. And then in terms of how do you do like client support? How do you have auditability? Um, we have what's called view keys. So on every wallet, you can give someone a view key for a wallet and it does what it sounds like. It gives the uh, holder of the view key the ability to see all the transactions that a wallet has done without being able to spend any of the funds in the wallet. Um, and so this is going to be important for um, regulation and making sure that all funds are accounted for um, and having good book, uh, bookkeeping and kind of all, all those things. Um, but yeah, I mean, like at the end of the day, like we want to make this a very user-friendly experience um, and just be very explicit about what people are using and making sure that they understand that you are using a privacy coin and you feel that they feel safe about it. Is there a goal you're trying to hit or, um, yeah, what does the light at the end of the tunnel look like right now? Yeah. So, um, kind of like what I was saying before, it took us a year to get to like an internal and test net. So we've, you know, we have like a lot of the stuff working, but you know, it's, uh, there's no UI yet, and so it's, it's kind of rough on the edges. And so our next step is actually how do we make this into uh, how do we get to a public testnet so we can get more developers and more people running this thing and making sure there aren't any bugs. And then kind of the step afterwards is like, well, okay, how do we make these uh, like clients and wallets and UIs um, so people can actually use this easier? And then we have like a plethora of other features. It, but um, kind of the umbrella of all those features is that one goal of how do you make a privacy coin that works. <laughs> so are you allowed to talk about the back end? Is it like the proof of work, proof of stake, DAG? Yeah, um, so we went with proof of work and I can go into explain why we chose that. Um, yeah. But long story short, I still believe that proof of work is still the best strategy for new chains. I know that proof of stake is kind of the you know the thing to do nowadays um and uh and we looked into proof of stake for quite some time um and we kind of came to the conclusion that there are a lot of question marks and a lot of uh vulnerability concerns with proof of stake um mm. that it's not really worth it for us to to go that route that's interesting i mean proof of work is really under attack right now for being something that destroys the environment so it's interesting to hear that you are that you have chosen for that as a way to secure the the network. Yeah, I mean, I I personally don't love the environment aspect of, of proof of work. I'm, I'm not advocating for it. Um, but purely from distribution or fairness or even security and lack of vulnerabilities, um, proof of work is still the better like the better system to use. Um, now, you know, kind of like looking further ahead. You know, I'm like paying attention um, closely to uh, to proof of space time. Um, so, for full disclosure, I am renting a desk of, uh, out of an office space belonging to a company called Chia. Um, Chia is uh, a company, a, a cryptocurrency that is actually trying to make a proof of space time chain. Um, proof of space time. That's right. This is the first time I've heard this. Yeah, yeah. me too. <laughs> so, uh, post proof of space time for short. Um, it's uh, it's basically an attempt to replace GPUs with a uh, hard drive disk or, or you know, disk space. Um, so kind of like for Bitcoin, if you dedicate more GPUs or more ASICs to mining Bitcoin, then you have higher chance of uh, mining that block. Um, here, you're basically saying uh, the more disk space that you're allocating, the more chance you're, you have of getting that new block. Um, so that's kind of like proof of space time in a nutshell. Um, you know, we haven't seen any of these, any proof of space time uh, kind of implementations go in the wild. And so I'm still like, like closely monitoring these projects and, and seeing like how they do, uh, how do they, how they do in the wild in terms of like vulnerabilities and, you know, actually working. Um, 
but it's a really interesting concept and it's a very green approach and uh, it actually has a lot of things uh, done better than proof of, than proof of stake. So has has so uh, you 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 mentioned fairness and I want to touch on that because I think that's one of the things uh, JJ and I have always kind of me more so me have had a problem with Bitcoin is because it's not fair in the sense of you have to have a lot of capital to be able to mine and even in the beginning you had to have a laptop which you know 95% of the planet didn't have or 90% of the planet didn't even have a, you know didn't have a computer back then so the idea of fairness of even with proof of of space time so you're saying like the person with the biggest hard drive is going to get the most reward in essence so I, that still comes down to to capital um can you see in the future any chance of maybe uh, proof of time versus you're not you don't have to worry about the space, just how much you're so even if you only have like a cell phone, you're allocating a certain amount of time every, every day, day to use your, your cell, cell phone, phone to mine. mine that, that it's, it's not, not so, so much about how, how much output, output you're doing, but the, the, the amount of time, time you're dedicating to the project and rewarding people that way. way. So I think the fairness thing comes from cost. So how expensive is it for you to have a mining rig for Bitcoin versus having a bunch of hard drives? So in your example with the mobile phone, you know, you could imagine where you can say, okay, my phone can dedicate some disk space. Then the question becomes, well, how do we choose which miner actually gets that block reward for mining that block? Um, and, you know, even with Bitcoin now, even though it's, you know, unfair, like if you have your computer, you actually have some chance of finding that hash that results in a, in a new block. So it's actually a probability game. It's just that you have pretty bad odds if you're doing it on your laptop versus if you're a mining pool. And so with the previous space time with hard drives, it's the same concept of like, well, you know, it depends on just how many hard drives you have. Um, and if you have more hard drives and you have higher probability of getting that new block. Um, and you know you can kind of argue that hard drives are cheaper than ASICs. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> now, yeah, but if if you're if if Beanstalk blew up, everybody would be going out and hoarding all the hard drives, and that might jack up the price, just like ASICs. Um, At which point you'd have to look at the model, I guess, and see if it's yeah. sustainable. Well, I guess so. I guess the the question is first off the idea of fairness. Um, just because we talk about that a lot on this show about the uh, like you know because we're both artists and and we both took a certain path and um and the idea of fair in the sense of like why does one person have to receive the reward if a hundred people are are jockeying to find this thing and they're all putting all this energy into the space, space why, why can't, can't they, they all, all be rewarded, rewarded? based, based on, on how much energy, energy they put into the space. space. And it's kind of a bigger question for uh, like proof of work as it is right now. But So yeah. technically, mining pools fit your definition of fairness. So in a mining pool, you like let's say there's a mining pool of 100 computers, and you are one of those 100 computers, and one of them finds this block, and they get a block reward. The way mining pools work is they all actually divide the reward. So when yeah. we talk about like centralization in Bitcoin, like we say like, oh, these, you know, this mining pool has like 30% of the hash power for Bitcoin or whatever that is, you know, you're actually like, if you kind of dig deeper, it's like, well, there are different individuals inside that mining pool that actually benefit from that block award. So in a, in a lot of ways, I would challenge, I would challenge you saying that Bitcoin is not fair because you kind of gave a definition of fairness that fits mining pools. Sure. Yeah, yeah, but, but I, I guess, guess I guess, guess the point is, why, why couldn't there, there just be one, one mining pool? Why couldn't there be one mining pool? Well, you do still want some decentralization. You don't want to have one mining pool kind of control how all blocks are created. Yeah, but if you're the mining pool, if if the code is the mining pool, and just every single person is connecting to the code, and the code is decentralized at a certain point, how co then, why wouldn't that why wouldn't that work? And I okay. love and I love the fact that you're pushing back because I love uh, you know I just I, I, you know I definitely want to uh, these are things I think about and you're the first person who's actually taken the time 
to respond. Like we ask a lot of Bitcoiners on Twitter and none of them will answer. None of them, none of them will respond. Yeah. We're going to have to have you back on the show. I think <laughs> to, t- to talk about, <laughs> to talk about the, <laughs> talk about proof of work and proof of space time. But yeah, that, I guess Michael's, Michael's question is, is like, in that case, I guess everyone would get the, everyone would share the block rewards, right? Or something like that. Yeah, I mean, if you, if that you want to dedicate some of your, some of your, uh, phone or computer or whatever and you put in one percent of the output why you know if there was just one one mining pool and every single person was connected to, to, to the, the code, code that, that you created, created that, that was now decentralized, decentralized like to say you know 20, 20 years down, down the road, road why would it be weird for me to get one percent of the reward if i'm putting in one percent of the energy yeah i mean i kind of understand why you think one huge mining pool would be a good idea <laughs> But you're kind of leaving like this single, like a single source of vulnerability for your entire chain. Like if this one mining pool is compromised, then your entire network is kind of in trouble. So I think that it's like it's healthy to have competition. It's healthy to have diversity. So these mining pools, I mean, there's different software running for all these things. So if one mining pool has like some serious bug or whatever, it doesn't bring down the entire, you know, Bitcoin network. Um, yeah, you need to incentivize too, just to otherwise you'd have no growth in that in that way. At least I, I assume. I mean, yeah, competition may be a good thing. Elena, I have I've got one more question, and it might be a big one. It might not be. It's 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 about um, when you have privacy as an innate part of your your chain, your network. Does that introduce other security problems? We had a guest on this show who actually said he really didn't want... One of the reasons that he kind of moved away from BTC to the other forks was that he didn't want to see Bitcoin become private or enable privacy features because then it would be... He was worried that it'd become easier to steal because you wouldn't be able to see everything. I mean, that's how proof of work works. All All the the miners miners can can see every every transaction. transaction. So So there's there's nobody nobody hiding anything. anything. When When you you have have transactions that are private... Do, do you, like what are the what are the fears and concerns when it comes to security? Yeah, so I'm not sure where that person got their information from, <laughs> because BTC isn't strictly moving to privacy. Um, so Bitcoin, Bitcoin Core, they have a lot of features that might be kind of like nice cherries on top in terms well, of privacy. Let, let me just say that I don't think that we that that yeah, we, we were, were talking about BTC moving towards privacy, but it's one, one of the things that, that like, you know, Andreas talks about is like, you know, privacy, privacy features will be next in Bitcoin. So, so I, think I think a lot of people are thinking that BTC will eventually have some sort of privacy. But anyway, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, so to kind of give you a little bit more background there, um, so Bitcoin right now is looking into something called Schnorr signatures which will give you some privacy guarantees as a side effect. Um, but really, they're mostly used for sp- like space efficiency because Schnorr signatures allow you to aggregate signatures within a transaction, effectively. Um, and so, in essence, kind of as a, like a, uh, a side effect, um, it might help hide the sender and the receiver. Actually, I think, I think just the sender, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. Uh, maybe the receiver also. I need to... Don't quote me on that. <laughs> um, so it's, you know, it's like a very weak form of privacy because, like, everything else is still public. Um, d- on top of that, Schnorr signatures have been in the works for Bitcoin for years. <laughs> I think uh, uh, the blockchain kind of like lightning. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had to get a little dig in there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I think it was first introduced in a Bitcoin forum literally years ago. And I think uh, almost a year ago, uh, Peter Wheel made uh, like a Bitcoin proposal uh, to include Schnorr signatures. Um, there may or may not be implementation of this yet, but regardless, it's going extremely slow. So even though we hear Bitcoin moving to privacy, Bitcoin as a feature moves extre- extremely slow. Um, and I'm glad that they do because you know it needs to be secure, stable, and so on. So I wouldn't be really worried about Bitcoin making such a drastic change um, and, you know, making, making a huge difference. So that's like one thing. <laughs> so the other thing is, um, you know, this concern of if my chain is fully private, um, how does a person know that there isn't inflation happening, uh, like that there isn't a hacker, for example, that managed to print themselves a lot of coins, um, and now no one can see that because no one sees the full amount. Right. So that's actually a pretty big concern. 
Um, and actually Zcash and Monero both have had a lot of pushback from people saying like, if someone did hack Zcash or Monero, we would never know. And uh, so this is actually a real problem, um, one that we've been thinking a lot about as well. And, um, you know, the answer there really is, how much do you trust math? <laughs> uh, because... If you're an American, not much. <laughs> yeah, you, you, um, you, you trust your gut. You trust your gut. Okay, <laughs> well then. <laughs> that one's kind of hard to tease. Um, so technically, with Shielded Zcash, or Monero, or Beanstalk, either, even though you can't see the amounts, you still have proofs and equality checks that no new money has been created out of thin air. Um, and so if you wanted to add an additional proof that says, no, really, no money has been created out of thin air, um, the problem there is that additional proof would actually have the same security vulnerabilities as the other proofs. And so if one of them got hacked, so to speak, if Xenolodge proofs got hacked or if elliptic cryptography got hacked, then so would that additional proof. So at that point, it actually doesn't make sense for you to add that additional proof to begin with, because it would be broken in the same way. And so the argument there is, it's like, well, this cryptography is actually, like, very solid, and whatever other proof that we will add will depend on the same, like, security vulnerabilities, um, and so it doesn't make sense to add that. Uh, and, you know, for Zcash, Monero, and so on, when we see hacks in these systems, it's not based on the cryptography itself. It's usually some really dumb implementation bug. <laughs> it's really like yeah. the bugs in the code, and not really yeah. bugs in these like uh, in, in these like you know cryptography protocols. Yeah, um, right. So really, if you wanted to like have a secure coin, you should focus less on the heavy duty cryptography and more on you know the the, the stupid bugs that uh, that come up in clients. Double checking right. the the humans who are inputting stuff. That's right. Yeah. So right. why, why didn't you, last question, why didn't you build this as like a side chain on Bitcoin? Or Ethereum. Or Bitcoin anything. Core. Yeah, um, good question. So for Ethereum, there actually are projects working on adding privacy to Ethereum. One of them is called Aztec, and they're soon. So um, it's an interesting project to watch out for. Um, it, what so is it called? Aztec. Like, like. like like, like the, the like the Incas and the Mayas, or that's right. Aztec, Mexican or Aztec, A Z T E C. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Like okay. the Incas and the Mayas. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we actually did look at, at figuring out how to put privacy in Ethereum first, and the conclusion that we came to is that it would be a pretty bad user experience because one, um, the the fee like the gas fees like the fees to send your transaction would be really high, which is what we're seeing with Aztec, and two, um, it would not. There's, it would be very difficult to actually provide full privacy. So, for example, for Aztec, logistically speaking, it can hide the amounts, um, but not necessarily the sender or the receiver, because someone still has to pay for that gas. And there is actually a technique to do like a, to, uh, to basically uh, prepay the gas for the receiver, and there's like a lot of other complexity. But like, like, uh, like, technically, like, logistically speaking, it'd be very difficult to actually hide the sender or the, or the receiver. And so you really only are only hiding the amounts. Um, and if we aren't, aren't you doing that with Bitcoin as well, with a with a with a fee? So for Bitcoin, um, it would be extremely hard to add privacy because there's no smart contracts. So ASIC is possible because it has smart because it has smart contracts. Okay. And so you're so you're you're just still have a fee. Like if I want to send you, you know, ten ten beanstalk. There's still going to be a fee, right? There's still going to be a fee, but to give you kind of a perspective for Aztec, um, last time I checked, and these numbers might be not uh, out of date, um, an Aztec transaction will cost you 700,000 gas. And to kind of give you a perspective, an Ethereum block usually has uh, a capacity for 7 million gas. So, you know, you would fill a tenth of the Ethereum block just with one Aztec transaction, and so that's going to cost you. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> wow, amazing answers. So, what, uh, like, what do you have a launch date for Beanstalk? Or and oh boy. is is there what? <laughs> no what do you what do you need from the community? How can we help? How can we be a part of it? Yeah. Um, so right now, as you can kind of tell, we don't have that much on our website, but um, hopefully in the next couple months we're going to be releasing a public testnet. And so this is a way for people to 
run their own clients, connect to our testnet, uh, you know, send some fake transactions around, read the documentation, make sure that it makes sense to them. Um, so when that happens, I'll definitely let, let you know, um, because our goal here is to kind of explain all this tech in a very readable way, um, because we really want to make sure that our users understand how this technology works, and it's on us to explain it in a way that makes sense. So <laughs> stay tuned. Right, and, and, we're, so and we're the guys, like, because we're constantly calling people out when when they're like they're using too much jargon or, or buzzwords, and average people are like, like, huh? So, so it's, 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 it's good, good that, that you're, you're doing, doing that. To, yes, thank you. Yeah. Thank so you how, do, how, do, how do our listeners follow you and keep up to date with, uh, with Beanstalk and you? Yeah, well, despite our website being basically uh, <laughs> blank, we do have a way for you to sign up to our mailing list. <laughs> and once we launch some stuff, we uh, email people about it. Okay. So mailing list address will be in the, uh, or how to sign up will be in the description. And then on uh, and your Twitter, you're on Twitter. Are you active on Twitter? Relatively active on Twitter, yeah. Okay, okay. and that's uh, what's your Twitter handle? Lean the Bean. Lean the Bean. L e a n t h e b e a n. That's right. You got it. Lean the Bean. And the website is just beanstalk.com or beanstalk.io or beanstalk.network. Network. Network. Nice. Thank you so much. Elena. Yeah, we definitely this need was... to have you back on because I have I have too many questions and you're too and you're amazing at answering yeah. and and We're you're the first need... person who's actually actually explained the competition of my of groups like mining yeah. groups and, and that gonna, really made a lot of sense. We're probably going to need to do. I mean, I'd love to do another um, another episode where you talk about uh, Monero and how it works because I have all kinds of issues with with Monero. And then the other thing is just we it's very hard for us to get um, Bitcoin BTC developers to answer a lot of our questions. And I feel like you answered like four of them yeah. like in this uh, in this in this interview. So thank you so much. Yeah, um, of course. And of course, uh, let let us know if you recommend that we talk to anybody else in okay. this space. Um, yeah. Anything anything else you want to share with uh, with the listeners or with us or anything? Oh, man, I think I covered a lot. I don't know. Do you have any, do you have any more questions? Well, I'm, I'm sure, sure we'll, we'll get, get some, some replies. replies. We'll we'll, uh, yeah. we'll send them your direction. I'm sure you'll get some new followers and people interested. That'd be awesome. Uh, but, all right. Well, with that, thanks, everybody. Tune in next week. <laughs>